Business as Unusual is a thought-provoking podcast that explores the innovative strategies, disruptive ideas, and unconventional practices driving successful leaders and companies in the ever-evolving world of modern business. Subscribe, comment, and share for weekly inspiration with our host, Aisela. Hi, welcome to Business as Unusual. This is Aisla, and I'm here today with Catherine McDonald of Just Because Consulting. Welcome, Catherine. Nice to see you again. Yes, thank you for having me. I am looking forward to this conversation. Before we dive in, what is the last thing you did for fun that you want to talk about on a podcast? Last thing I did for fun? Oh, my. These days, it's been very work-focused, I have to admit. But these days, one of the things that I've been trying to do a lot more of is really to get outside more. And living in Mexico, I tend to have a lot of really awesome places to go around. And so every couple of weeks, we go to different natural places. So one of the ones we went to recently was Bacalar, which is this lagoon in the south of the Yucatan Peninsula that has seven colors of blue. So it's like really known as like a natural treasure because there is the lagoon itself has just naturally seven different colors of blue. So that was really nice just to go and just spend some time outside and really appreciate more like how beautiful it is outside. <laughs> it was just really cool. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Yeah, no, it's I when you said you live there, I was like, oh, I'm jealous. It sounds lovely. As a consultant, you focus on something called non-human philanthropy. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about what that is and how you got into that? Yeah, for sure. When we think about philanthropy, we think about philanthropists like Bill Gates and all these big names that have millions and millions, if not billions of dollars, and how they give it to different charities. But philanthropy, of course, includes so much more than that. It can include a lot of the community giving, smaller scale organizations, fundraising, et cetera. When I talk about non-human philanthropy, what I'm actually talking about is all these initiatives that are for animals or the environment, so non-human focus. However, what a lot of people don't realize is that everything is actually interconnected. And that's one of the main things that I find I need to convince people of. When people think you're defending animals, especially, it's almost as if that means you don't care about humans. Right. But what I've noticed by working with a lot of these organizations is that who is making up these organizations? It's volunteers, it's donors, it's employees, it's people that are running a lot of these organizations. So they are not actually non-human, even if they are focused on non-human causes. And so one of the biggest things that I've been talking about and trying to get the word out there is making that connection of the intersectionality between a lot of these causes and humans, human society. We are dependent on a lot animals in many ways for agriculture, for taking care of the biodiversity of our ecosystems. We need animals to make sure that our ecosystems stay healthy. And of course, as humans, we are completely dependent on our natural world to sustain ourselves. So it's not non-human. And one of the main points I bring about is this contradiction because philanthropy, if you look at the definition of the word and the sources, the like Latin sources, the roots of the word is Phil means love and anthropy means humans. So it's love of humans. And one of the mm-hmm. biggest obstacles in when you're defending non-human philanthropy is a lot of these causes are a problem because of humans. So you don't tend to love them as much in some of these cases. So there tends to be a big conflict between needing humans to defend these causes, like I said, as volunteers, employees, donors, et cetera. But then also that humans are a big part of the problem. And that we need to change their behavior. And so it, t- it tends to sometimes be seen as coming into conflict. 
with, mm-hmm. with the cause. I have to admit, I've been guilty of this in my life in different areas, so I'm not trying to blame anyone, but the often you'll hear that as a lack. Oh, I'm focusing on animals, and that just means that I don't care about anything else. And that's just where I'm focusing. A friend of mine used to say it this way. She's like, if you have five kids and one of them needs shoes, you don't buy all the kids' shoes. You just buy one of the kids' shoes. And that's not because you don't want the other kids to have shoes. It's just they do. <laughs> it's all good. And if they need shoes, they can tell you. I feel like it's a I don't know. It's a very human response. And yet it's also not super supportive of us being able to focus the way we need to, because everyone has to pick something. If you try to do something about everything that needs attention, you just would be very surface level. There's no way to really show up in a deep way without getting some sense of focus. And it's not necessarily efficient. I feel that a lot of people, the way that you're going to really be able to be efficient and reach your objectives is when you're doing what motivates you and is your passion. I could, let's say as a fundraiser, I could fundraise. I know the techniques of fundraising for any cause. However, if my passion is the environment, if it's animals, then the way I'm going to speak about it, the way I'm going to be able to motivate people is going to be so much more strong than if I do it for a cause that doesn't really motivate me or doesn't really light my fire. A lot of times what I feel is that it's everyone just focused on what turns them on in that sense of what gets them excited and passionate then we'd be living in a much better world instead of fo- or forcing people to defend causes or to work in things that they don't care about. So I agree with the, the parent thing of also as a parent, you need to also choose what your skills are and what maybe there's other people that are better at teaching. Your, let's say if my child is into coding, I am not a techno savvy person. It would be a disservice to him for me to do the work. Doesn't mean I don't love him or I don't support his dreams, but it's about finding the right people to do the right things. And then if we all do that, then our entire ecosystem is going to be taken care of. So I I do think that it's necessary to defend all causes by the right people. I really agree with that. This is business as unusual. So what is unusual about the work that you do? I do believe that if when we think about philanthropy in general, a lot of people will associate it with certain causes, associate it with more of the arts, the cult, like arts and culture, museums, hospitals, a lot of health, education, universities, et cetera. So we talk about more grassroots, smaller groups. From a consulting perspective, most people don't feel that those organizations can use businesses and consulting services. So what I've often done is made sure to pair my skills with organizations that need it most, which is not necessarily those that can afford it. One of the things that I've done to really help support my clients is to find funding for my work to allow them to hire me, which is something that allows them to build up the capacity necessary without necessarily coming up front with the capital investment in my services. So in different cases, I found up to sometimes 100% of my consulting services have been funded through external services, such as government funding, business startup funding, or other other sources which has really allowed me to work with organizations that wouldn't necessarily be able to hire me otherwise. I feel unlike other organizations that might just focus on big ticket organizations that can hire them directly and that have the money to invest, I prefer building up capacity in organizations that don't necessarily have the funds right now, but that their cause is worthwhile or that they're motivated. They just don't have the funds right now. So that's one of the aspects that makes it a bit different in the work I do. That is unique. And I, from my own experiences working in the nonprofit world, is a really important and helpful aspect. I feel like when I first started out, it's like a lot of communities. There's a lot of jargon. And there's also specific ways, honestly, that people want to hear about stuff, which is a whole other topic of conversation. And having somebody that can negotiate that 
on behalf of your organization and help you set up your systems in a way that speaks to those particular infrastructural requests, it, it makes a really big difference in the way that you can present yourself and be successful. So that's really neat. I also think that a lot of organizations, uh, they end up working with services that want to continuously work with them on a long-term basis. So for example, I'll give a concrete example of one of my clients for their web design services and their web management. They are completely dependent on those who built their website to make any changes, to make any, like, any updates to their website. They constantly have to pay more and more to the service to manage it, which is fine. That's their business model. However, mine is a bit different in the sense that I don't want them to need me full time or forever. My objective is to build up their internal capacity, set up the systems like you're saying, the processes, getting them to understand, but then also be able to manage it themselves. Because the cost of having a coach or an external service is always higher than doing it in-house. They might not have the capacity now, but the objective is to build up that internal capacity so that it also becomes like their secret sauce. So they have to do it in their way. When you're hiring someone externally, they're going to be bringing their own baggage in a way and their own way of doing things, which can be very helpful to inspire them into doing it in a certain way. However, at the end of the day, they need to really adopt those processes themselves so that it becomes natural and organic to the organization. And obviously will also return, the return on investment will be much higher when they don't have to constantly be paying for consulting services in the long run. Unlike most people, I'm not trying to build up a dependency where they can hire me for years on end on a retainer, for example. I want to do a closed project so at the end, they don't need my services anymore in that particular sphere. Mm -hmm. They can maybe hire me for a different component of their fundraising strategy, but that they're not, there's not this link of dependence. I appreciate that you also do the boots on the ground work as well, because I, once again, I feel like I, I observe that a lot where folks wanted to come in and just offer advice. And it's, it's great. And there's a, there's a bridge we need. They need someone who can actually create some support processes because part of the way often I think a smaller nonprofit will hire a fundraiser is because they're overwhelmed. So getting more information about what they're supposed to do isn't as helpful as, as we'd like it to be. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and I do believe there's like a transition. Of, mm -hmm. In the beginning, I might be doing more boots on the groundwork, like you're saying. It might help set up. I might even write some grant proposals for them and just support them in that work, revise their work. And then eventually it'll be more of that that coaching, consulting of once the systems are set up. And I do believe that there has to be that form of evolution. You can't just come in and just offer advice. And if they don't have the capacity, they can't just implement it themselves all the time. So who typically thrives with your service? A lot of times it's organizations that have a strong team in the sense of they have a good core team of people that know the organization well. So I Startups tend to not be ready for this kind of work yet. They have, they still have to get to know who they are. So people like organizations that have been around for a couple of years, but that are still just rolling with the motions and that don't necessarily have a huge fundraising department set up. Those are the ones that tend to benefit the most in the beginning for my services. However, for some of my other services, for such as I do donor analysis as well, so I can analyze a full database and really make it more efficient. That would be more larger scale organizations that have a longer history of doing fundraising where I can really dive deeper into their existing donor list and come out with a strategy that will allow them to focus more on retention instead of constantly being on a treadmill of acquisition. So I offer quite a diverse range of services. So it really depends on which one, either more small organizations that really just need that leg up to build their internal capacity and then they can take it and run. And there's the ones that are already having, let's say, a fundraising department that need more help in becoming more efficient. 
and finding the right strategies to really maximize the capacity. That sounds great. <laughs> What's advice you've received that has changed the way you think about what you do? Anyone in the fundraising world might have heard of Dan Pelotas, who is a huge fundraising, in the, especially in the U.S. He's been known, he did a, the most viewed TED Talks. And mm-hmm. they just launched a new movie, The Uncharitable Movie, that I highly recommend for anyone in the fundraising world. And he really flipped the idea around fundraising costs and overhead. And I feel it's very inspiring because in the nonprofit world, unlike in the business world, there's this huge scarcity mindset around investing in themselves. And when you hear listen to Dan Pelota, he really switches it around of when organizations allow themselves to invest in themselves, in their capacity, in their skill sets, in their people, that's when they're going to be able to grow and reach their objectives and actually accomplish their mission. But at the end of the day, nonprofits, what is the objective? Is it to limit costs and sit like in his talk, he talks about, do we want our tombstone to say we kept overhead low (laughs) or do we want it to be, we reached our mission. So I'll give a little case study example of this. One of my clients who they fund the transport of children with congenital heart disease in Rwanda from Rwanda to their partner organization in Europe to get the surgery they need to basically solve their congenital heart disease problem and live their full lives. They have this opportunity right now, and they were just, they were thinking about investing in it or not, of building a cath lab, so a catheter lab in Rwanda, which would allow for the surgeries to happen on the ground in their own country, which would solve their mission because now they wouldn't need to be transporting kids every time and save four or five kids a year. They'd be able to save 400 kids a year once the cath lab is set up, but the investment is $500,000. And that Mm -hmm. is much more than they had ever raised before. And at first they were like, oh, how are we going to do this? And the question was, should we invest the 25,000 to 30,000 we've been raising annually to save these four or five kids into fundraising? And that would mean that for that year, we would not be able to save any individual lives with Mm -hmm. the long-term objective of saving basically all of the kids with congenital heart disease. They would be able to get their surgeries all like much more accessibly. Right. So there's this question of, should we invest in ourselves by investing in this infrastructure and fundraising necessary to reach our objective and actually accomplish our mission or just be safe and be able to say our fundraising costs were zero Mm -hmm. and just save four or five. And after our conversation and our strategy, they realized like it would be a disservice to the populations they are claiming to serve to not invest into this kind of a campaign. So that was one of the things that really changed my mindset around investing in yourselves. And I take that on as an individual. Fundraisers need to take care of their own mental health, their well-being, make sure that they're in a healthy situation. And that's how they're going to bring their best person to work. As an organization, the same thing can be said. You need to invest in making sure that your team is doing well to be able to reach your objectives. And that is something that unfortunately I've seen is not common in the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. That's really true. It's great advice. So that I know this kind of work can be taxing, even if it's rewarding. How do you keep yourself inspired or recharged? Honestly, I've been in the sector for so long that for me, this is pretty much all I've ever known. I was one of those annoying people in high school that was watching all these like animal cruelty videos and pushing people to think about alternatives to meat. So it's always been part of who I was. And honestly, as a consultant, now that I've been working with many different organizations and meeting with people who 
want to bring about positive change, it, it just really gives me hope. So whenever I meet with new clients and I hear them and telling them, t- telling their stories, telling why they're doing this and their inspiration, even if it's not a cause that I'm necessarily personally attached to, hearing other people constantly share their dreams just gives me hope. Because the media right now really focuses on so much negativity. All we hear about is the wars, the disease, the deaths, the violence. That's what we focus on because that's what people tend to focus on. It's part of our natural brain chemistry, it seems, to just listen and focus more on the negativity. And by meeting with all these people who are I'm not saying everyone is succeeding in reaching their objectives, but seeing people try and put their best foot forward and do their best for me is what's been inspiring me to really just continue and try to get as many of these people to reach their goals as possible. I, I get that. Like if you're if you have a particular perspective, the work itself and seeing those moments of accomplishment can feel incredibly recharging and inspiring. Mm-hmm. And- I've always found that fundraising is everyone considers it as like this necessary evil to get the real work done. I see fundraising as just as as important because whenever I'm talking with potential donors or with people and I get them hyped up about it, it's I mean it's you have this opportunity to invest in the world you want to see. So I really try to switch it from you're giving away money and you're losing to like you're investing in the world you want to see. How many times in your life will you have that opportunity to bring about positive change? As individuals, realistically, there's not much we can do to change the entire world. But when we participate in a collective effort, such as through a nonprofit fundraising campaign or through a larger project, we are participating. We're like voting for that. So that kind of inspires me as well. I, as an individual, can't work for all of the organizations and fundraise for all of them and do all of the causes. So this whole thing about if you care for animals, you don't care about anyone else. I want to sell. I want to support all of the causes. And so what's the best way of me doing that? It's about building up the capacities that each organization can do what I can do for their own cause. That's awesome. And so folks who are listening and they're like, oh, my goodness, have to get involved, need to know more. What is this non-human philanthropy? What's the best way for them to find you? LinkedIn is definitely where I spend most of my time. I love the networking. I love the capacity to just follow what other people th- are doing. And the me- I'm very responsive on messaging. And I just launched the Non-Human Philanthropy podcast recently, and I'm still looking for guests and people to share their stories about non-human philanthropy. So don't hesitate to just reach out. I would love to hear your stories. And if not, tune into the, philanthropy, the Non-Human Philanthropy podcast to hear some practical advice on how you can help with your fundraising strategy and anything else that you might be having difficulty with. And I'm constantly looking for guests, for people who want to share their expertise, their stories. So by connecting with me on LinkedIn, it's Catherine Lacefield McDonald. I just recently changed my name. That would be really where I'm at right now. And I'd love to have any stories or feedback from people working in the sector. It'd be great to have a conversation. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you for having me.